Welcome to the latest edition of Magnified with Matt Cooper. Now, today's guest at my kitchen table is somebody who has done the state an enormous service over the last decade or so. He took over as the chief executive of IDA Ireland back in 2014, at a time when we were just starting to come out of the damage done by the Great Recession, when getting jobs was one of the key priorities for the government and for the country to try and overcome the crisis in which we were marred. And didn't it do the job well? And wasn't Martin Shanahan responsible for so much of that in attracting in major multinational investment to the country, giving us hundreds of thousands of jobs in doing so, and also in providing enormous corporation tax revenues to actually pay for the day-to-day expenditure of the state and capital investment. It has been an incredible success. Martin has now left the IDA Ireland and I conducted this interview with him recently when he was just about to start in his new job in Grant Thornton, the accountancy firm where he has become a partner. And in the interview, we discussed what he had done over the last decade or so with IDA Ireland, but much more besides as well, because Martin came into the job via a perhaps somewhat unorthodox route. And he talks as well about his upbringing in rural Kerry and about the impact of emigration as he was growing up. I hope you enjoy somebody who has had a fantastic career on behalf of Ireland. Please welcome Martin Shanahan. Did you tot up at any stage how many jobs were created at the IDA under your leadership? Uh, yeah, well, I, I guess because we report on uh, that every six months in IGA, um, it's, you know, when, when I, the year I joined, they, um, we were at 168,000. That has gone up uh, now. Uh, we do the employment survey in IGA, uh, our, the department does with IGA and Enterprise Ireland at the end of October. And at the end of October, uh, last year there were over three hundred thousand net. So there were a lot more jobs created during that period because to get to that net figure, obviously there are losses every year. So um, you know, a near a near doubling of employment over the the period. I know it's your job, but does it give you a degree of pride that that was achieved during your tenure? Um, I don't know about pride, but it certainly gives me um, a, a lot of satisfaction. Uh, I, I, job creation is hugely, hugely important, and uh, you know, I. I Grew up in seventies and eighties, rural Ireland. Um, I, you know, had first-hand experience and knew a lot of people who were impacted by unemployment. And uh, coming out of school, even in you know the seventeen um, eighties, you know, there wasn't a guarantee of a job, not alone a career. And uh, you know that has changed in Ireland. It has changed obviously dramatically. We're at sub four and a half percent unemployment now. Um, you know, I was doing some stuff, um, a, 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 an event uh, yesterday actually for uh, FDI uh, markets uh, with the FT and uh, it was for um, its peer learning for um, other investment promotion agencies. And one of the questions was, you know, is employment still important? You know, is, should that be a metric that um, investment promotion agencies are judged by? And in my view, it's not the only metric, but it is hugely important. And the day we lose sight of that, the day we lose sight of, you know, the importance of jobs, and particularly high-value jobs like the ones that are, have been attracted to this um, country, uh, you know, we're losing our way. Obviously, the economic impact that FDI brings in, the R&D, the skills, 
the management uh, capability that it has brought to this country is hugely important, but jobs really at the core. And when you took over, we were at a very low ebb and there was a massive impetus in government to actually get those jobs in. So how difficult was it at the time you started out to actually attract foreign direct investment to a country that was effectively bust? Yeah, you know, I think it's difficult attracting foreign direct investment at any time, to be honest with you. Um, But, you know, it is the case that FDI did, uh, I suppose, fuel the recovery in in Ireland post uh, the global financial crisis and indeed post the um, property bubble. Um, The... um, you know, we, we had, I think in a way, you know, we got back to doing what we we're good at. Um, you know, um, we, we got back to uh, the idea that we're an exporting uh, nation. We got back to the idea that we're, you know, about attracting investment. It's all Ireland can do, by the way. We don't have, you know, a, any natural resources to speak of. Um, okay, you can argue that grass grows greener or the wind blows stronger. But other than that, you know, um, we, we have to do those things. And we got back to those uh, fundamentals. And uh, it is about going out and making the case um, every day. That's what I and my colleagues uh, do, both in Ireland and, and overseas, to uh, two multinationals as to why Ireland was a good place. And, and we did have a proposition uh, to sell. Uh, we had, a, I think, a, quite a strong uh, proposition to sell. And, and that comes in, you know, many um, formats. I mean, I suppose we were selling the stability of the country. That was more difficult at that time, um, uh, certainly. Um, but, you know, Ireland, uh, when you look at it from 35,000 feet, um, it's stable politically, stable economically, stable um uh, geologically you know all of these things that you know we kind of take for granted um we had a, v- a highly educated population um we, we it was cost competitive at the time um like all of these things obviously um vary over time uh, and you know it's, some of them have improved since uh, i took o- uh, over the role uh, some of them have disimproved since i took over the role uh, but ideas role regardless of what is happening is to go out and sell. How did you become a salesman? Because that effectively is what you were, a salesman for Ireland, isn't it? Yeah, I think I think that's true. That, I mean, there's a couple of aspects to the role, obviously. Uh, you're, um, you know, you're trying to manage an organisation with a large budget, with uh, 360 people spread across the world in uh, 25 locations outside of Ireland. Uh, you're trying to... Uh, uh, sell to uh, investors. Uh, you're trying to um, help develop the product back here in Ireland, uh, engagement with the political system, engagement with um, local authorities, with a whole load of other players who support us in winning that investment. Uh, you know, I always describe um, it as a team sport. Um, ideas kind of out in front there, kind of the striker, I suppose, to, to some extent. But there are so many people, um, other agencies, professional services uh, that, that support us in that in, endeavour. But yourself, how did you develop those particular skills? Because you started in hotel management, didn't you? Yeah, I suppose some of that probably has rubbed off on me. I mean, I, I did. I, I started um, in, in the tourism and hospitality business. I mean, I, I worked in um, 
bars, restaurants, hotels since I was a very young age uh, down in Kerry. And um, and and th- that does help you. I mean, in the sense of, I, I, you know, just developing social skills and, you know, you, you literally meet all walks of life in that uh, business. And I think that does uh, does help. And, uh, you know, I was uh, uh, before I joined the public services I was in the public service for 23 years before I did that though I managed hotels and again that I think it gives you a kind of a, a customer focus um, it is just in time you are dealing with the issues they're right in front of you in that uh, business and uh, it does it does certainly develop I think your um, skills in terms of interactions with people and dealing with people yeah particularly in the hotel business do people a lot of the time have unrealistic expectations and very demanding because they're paying for you use of facilities and uh, expect everything to be absolutely perfect for them. Not just in the hotel industry, Matt, I would suggest <laughs> that, to, that that permeates lots of sectors. But yes, I mean, and rightly, you know, people are spending hard-earned money and uh, they, they want things to be right. And uh, as I said, you kind of succeed or fail very quickly in the hospitality business, whether it's a hotel, restaurant, um, uh, bar, uh, because your customer is in front of you. You know immediately whether they're satisfied or not. And it, because of that, it's much more difficult to remedy as well if something uh, goes wrong. I found in my experience in the hotel sector, which I loved, and I really um, you know, admire people who are involved in the hospitality sector, because I think it is a, a, a tough sector. But one thing never goes wrong, you know, like everything goes wrong at the one time, uh, you know, so you kind of never have just an isolated incident. It tends to be you have a bad run, but uh, it's um, but it's a great it's a great. Sector. But you have to develop sort of skills as to mollify people. Absolutely. Yeah. You yeah. talk people down. Yeah. Particularly yeah. if they've drink taken. Yeah, I mean, there is an element of that, obviously. And um, I think um, you, you do, you, you learn how to deal with people and you learn, how, uh, you know, um, how to interact with people. And uh, yeah, I think I think that's all part of it. Why did you choose that as a career initially? Um, yeah, again, I think it goes back to that growing up in Kerry. I, what part of Kerry is it? So I, I'm from a place called Abidorney in North County Kerry, which is very rural um, uh, Kerry. So you're uh, outside of Abidorney, outside of uh, Tralee would be the nearest uh, town, uh, six kilometres away. But yeah, I worked in, in bars and restaurants and just got a, a, a taste for it and uh, went and studied in um, hotel management in uh, called Brewer Street and, uh, and went into the hotel industry. Really uh, enjoyed my time uh, doing that um, and uh, kind of took the leap from there into um, the public sector via CERT, which was the State Tourism Training Agency, uh, subsequently merged with Board Falter to form Falter Ireland. So, um, Why did you do that? Why did you decide to go into the public service? You know, um, at the time, to be honest, I, I was going in for probably what I thought was maybe two, three years uh, with the view that I was going to come back into the sector knowing a lot more. Um, and um, I, I, I took up a role as a, a regional uh, manager with CERT down in the, the southwest. Um, as it happens, things just developed. I um, Within a couple of years, I was responsible for the entire regional uh, network and, uh, you know, got promoted and uh, just, um, I, I guess, became more difficult to probably leave it and uh, and I enjoyed it and uh, I you know 
I stepped away from that sector at the point where I joined um, Furfoss in 2005 and uh, I took up a role as um, head of human capital and labour market policy. Uh, it, it's, it, title. It, it's more exciting than it sounds, trust me. And so you're now, you, now you're looking, I suppose, at the uh, skills, capability and uh, of all sectors rather than just one sector. And that's kind of, I suppose, what led me to ultimately to where I am today. Actually, how well do we do on that here in Ireland in the 21st century? Because one of the arguments that I've heard put forward recently by some people who are interested in this area is that we've become too obsessed maybe with third level education and not with sort of more basic skills that actually may be better suited to some people and that gives them better employment prospects. Yeah, I, I think um, overall, I think we do very well. Okay, I think you know if you look at the international stats, which typically I, I do a lot, I think we I think we do well. I mean, we do well in basic education. You know, the performance of fifteen year olds in Ireland on, uh, you know, English, maths, uh, reading, writing, so on, is good. Um, then you know there is certainly an issue and has been an issue around um, people going into vocational education. Um, uh, 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 sorry, we're going into third level education rather than into vocational education. And there are other countries that are much stronger in that and have a, a much uh, stronger vocational strand. Um, and it's certainly that's something that, you know, we've been working on here in Ireland and I think has improved. But in a way, it's a mindset issue rather than even are the opportunities there or are the streams there for people to go into? Because there is, I think, a cultural obsession with going to university, going to, uh, you know, uh, college and that anything that is not that is lesser than that. And that doesn't exist, I think, el- elsewhere. And if you look at countries like Germany, where both the vocational and academic um, streams are viewed as, you know, kind of par- with parity. And uh, I think that's important. I think I think we're improving. Um, but, but yeah, we still have work to do. The one thing I would say is that one of the strengths that we have in, in Ireland is that we have done very good work with aligning the output of our education system with the needs of enterprise and now that's a continual endeavor and we'll never be done with it but but certainly you know the responsiveness of universities the now technological universities the further and higher uh, uh, the, the further education institutions uh, has been they've been really responsive to the needs of both local and international businesses and and that definitely is a plus but would you fear that there are gaps emerging there that we see sort of shortages in all types of employment categories at present but i'll just give one example that's come up in recent days shortage of engineers which means we may not be able to develop the infrastructure in the country we need to do and that in itself then is going to actually perhaps be a red flag to foreign direct investment coming into the country Absolutely. Listen, we're always going to have shortages and we're a small country and, you know, we do have a very, again, highly educated um, uh, workforce, you know, one of the highest in uh, the the OECD. Um, But there will always be gaps to plug. And I I suppose I should say, I mean, the second part of, you know, the offering from a kind of skilled labour perspective, um, you know, we have what comes through our own education system and and that stream. But obviously the... um, Inward migration of uh, highly skilled people into Ireland has been a huge plus for the economy and I would argue for society. And, uh, you know, all countries are looking for talent. Um, And it is those both countries and companies that are successful at uh, attracting 
developing, retaining talent that will be successful going forward. That's the ingredient. That's the, the raw material. There are a few positives out of Brexit, but could it be one positive for Ireland that people who might have gone to live in Britain will look to Ireland as an opportunity within the EU when they can't get into Britain? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, that is uh, certainly a, a possibility. But I think Ireland um, ha- has been attractive to um, people, who, uh, you know, and a lot of them very highly skilled people who uh, want to come and work. And uh, and typically the people, you know, who leave uh, their own countries voluntarily, I mean, uh, you know, aside from having to for uh, reasons that unfortunately do exist as well, but people who voluntarily leave their own countries to make a better life for themselves, for the families and so on, are highly motivated people and, you know, uh, contribute. But the problem then is finding housing for them here in Ireland. And even in your new role as advisor to companies coming into Ireland with Grant Thornton, I suspect that's going to be a major issue for getting investment in the future, isn't it? Companies are going to look at this and say, well, where are our staff going to live? Yeah, listen, I mean, it, it's clearly an issue uh, in terms of our um, the, the imbalance between the de- uh, demand and supply of, of housing. Uh, we know that. Uh, we also know that it is you know, top of the um, uh, government's, uh, I suppose, list of things that it has to do. Um, it, um, it's improving, I think, the, you know, and we can see that in, again, the stats and the kind of steep upward curve in terms of the n- number of houses being uh, uh, and accommodations being uh, completed. Uh, it's just not fast enough. That's the reality. And we know why we are where we are, uh, you know, post the property bubble, you know, nobody would come into the market. Developers, uh, funders, uh, construction companies, you know, all, you know, heavily burnt. And, you know, therefore we had a period where there was no construction. And, um, you know, so we are unfortunately still reaping the uh, impacts of, of some of that. Um, it, it, it is it is a drag, I think, and will continue to be a drag on the uh, our ability to attract investment and on the economy. Uh, having said that, we have to keep perspective here, and you know that's certainly in the last uh, eight nine years that, that that's what I, I, I'm always trying to do is that there are many other locations which suffered the same issues and particularly a lot of the really developed locations that have attracted a lot, a lot of foreign direct investment they they suffer from the exact same issues so it, it you know it's about seeing where we are relatively it's not a uniquely irish situation it, 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 it's not and listen that's not to minimize this because this is a hugely hugely um significant issue for those that are trying to access the uh the housing market and you know who um c- can't uh, secure a home or can't afford uh, to have their own home uh, or you know are dealing with very high rents that's not to minimize it but but it is not a, a uniquely irish phenomenon and particularly in the developed locations that for instance ida would uh, have been uh, competing against this is this is also an issue but it's not a new issue in the sense that i think from late 2014 it was becoming clear that we actually needed a new supply of housing that was unexpected, perhaps, given what had happened in the previous five years. Was this something that the IDA was flagging to the government on a regular basis? Because some of the comments we're getting from government ministers, indeed the Taoiseach recently, would almost imply that this was some sort of surprise. I, I don't think it was a surprise. I mean, I think uh, it, it it was clear that um, for quite some time that, you know, we are... F- falling behind um and 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 you and you see that you know reflected in both cost of buying rental uh, accommodation and so on um you know it, it certainly wasn't as acute 
probably then as it is now. But uh, I mean, most of these things can be um, preempted and uh, are known. And you look at, you know, you look at how the economy has grown. I mean, I think to be fair to all concerned, the economy has recovered and grown much more quickly post the uh, global financial crisis than anybody might have thought we would have. Um, but you look at population projections, um, you know, again, most of these things are are, are somewhat um, uh, predictable. I mean, it does speak, I think, uh, Matt, to the, you know, an issue that we have now, which which is partly a function of the fact that we have been very successful at growing the economy. We've been very successful at uh, attracting foreign direct investment, indeed growing indigenous companies, is that the overall carrying capacity of the economy is is under pressure. And what I mean by that is is housing, uh, infrastructure, you know, whether it's energy, water, all of these things, um, you know, are under pressure because of uh, uh, of that. Uh, that isn't to say that it wasn't known that we would need those. I mean, it's clear, uh, you know, to me at least, and uh, IDA during my time was um, always, I think, pretty frank about what was needed in the economy and, you know, uh, including, you know, saying very publicly that we had concerns about, you know, the how infrastructure was keeping pace with what was required. I'm very I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to ask you about things like water supply and electricity supply. Just having the grid brought up to sufficient capacity to allow for us to bring in, for example, data centres without them becoming a major issue of contention. So, so I mean, you know, if you take that just as the example, uh, you know, no no data centre landed in Ireland in 2020 or 2021 and was switched on and required um, an output from uh, uh, or an input rather from uh, the electricity grid that wasn't known that wasn't known years in advance because these things typically take a bit of time you have to um, you know make your decision that you're going to come to Ireland you have to uh, get your planning permission you have to get your grid connection you have to build the thing you have to commission it and so on so we're talking years in advance so the idea that um you know data centers are the cause of uh, an issue it just doesn't uh, stack up and uh, the um this is a supply side issue rather than the band side issue it isn't large energy users data centers or other very large energy users that are causing the issue we just haven't kept pace in terms of our our, our grid and particularly um uh, generation uh, our generation capability is under pressure continues to be under pressure and you know the the exhortation from idea and from me while i was ceo of idea always would be you know to get on with it um, like it isn't for the lack of good plans or um you know for people knowing what the issue is it is largely execution and then what about the issue also of objections to things that whenever you want to do something that is for the overall good people in a local area say no i'm just thinking of one example maybe been the apple center down in atten ryan galway which never went ahead Yes, I mean, you can understand from an IDA perspective uh, uh, and indeed from my perspective, the frustration when you have a company that has already invested hugely in Ireland, was proposing at that time to bring a data centre um, with an investment of close to $1 billion um, into a location 
and um, it, it it doesn't go ahead. Actually, in this instance, not because they couldn't get uh, planning, it's because when the planning was finally received, it took so long that the company's plans had moved on. So, you know, when it, it comes to the planning system, you know, I and I think all of the companies uh, that uh, I worked with, uh, with my colleagues in IDA, everybody understands the needs for checks and balances. Everybody understands that we need a robust planning system that, um, uh, you know, individuals or organizations should have the right to have input to the planning process. It is how it's done and the speed at which it's done and the ability to hold up things interminably. And from a company's perspective, an investor's perspective, what they want to know is what is the timeline in which I will get the answer. They're not necessarily looking for certainty of outcome. They just want certainty of the timeline in which they'll get the answer because then they can move on to the next um, uh, in- investment project. If it's not going to be in Nathan Rye or it's not going to be in Ireland, it's going to be somewhere else. That's what they're looking for. Um, obviously, there's um, work going on at the moment to um, you know, reform that planning system and, and review it. And again, in my view, can't happen quickly enough. The one thing that we did get plenty of building of, though, which must must have been brilliant for you in the IDA, was commercial office blocks, particularly around Dublin, the Docklands and whatever. In, how difficult was that to, or how, what input did you have in persuading government and NAMA to invest in that type of activity? And a lot of that is private sector led and, you know, people making speculative uh, um, uh, investments, it should be said. And, and we would have, you know, um, worked with um, the private sector to, I, I suppose, ensure that they understood what type of um, facilities we were looking for, uh, what type of offices, what scale, uh, what does you know a company coming in, what are they likely to be looking for, and and it's about ensuring that the information is in the market to make sure that uh, those that do have the wherewithal to invest, whether it's public or private, that they they are doing so on an informed basis. The other side of that is, you know, a lot of that was in Dublin and in Cork um, to uh, a lesser extent. Um, it took a long time for that speculative investment to bleed out into areas like Galway um, uh, or Limerick. I mean, that's really just a very recent phenomena. It meant that IDA um, built its its own um, solutions. Um, so, you know, part of what idea does is it, it it invests in land, it develops business and technology parks, it develops advanced office buildings, advanced um, technology buildings, which are basically advanced manufacturing buildings, and uh, and doing that around the country in locations where a private sector investor is not going to invest speculatively because they're just not confident enough that they will secure a tenant or a buyer for that uh, property. And uh, that has worked. That has worked. And has it worked well enough? Do we have enough of a regional disbursement of investment into Ireland? Because the perception, certainly outside Dublin, would be that Dublin gets nearly everything. Yeah, and that just doesn't stack up. If like, you just look at the stats, it's just clear that Dublin doesn't get everything. But, I mean, there's a few things on this. Firstly, Dublin is uh, our only city of international scale. And, you know, as as troubling as that might be to other uh, cities in uh, the, the country, th- that's just a, a statement of uh, fact. It is also our capital city. It is a beacon for investment, not just for Dublin. It is a beacon of investment for Ireland. So we are using Dublin in order to get interest so that we can talk to them about other uh, locations. So Dublin is hugely important and we want Dublin 
to uh, continue to be uh, attractive. The um, over 52% of employment in FDI companies is outside of, of Dublin. Um, when I um, joined IDA in 2014, I mean, this this was certainly a very significant issue, and it, and it continues to be, uh, but uh, and it continues to be a key part of the strategy. But we we at that point we set targets to increase investment. Uh, over a five-year period by 30 to 40 percent in all regions. It was the first time that IGA had publicly set out targets as to how many investments we were going to win in each uh, location. And, and you know, that in itself was challenging because once you set out the targets and you say what you think a region can actually win, well, you know, not everybody's going to agree with you as to that is the potential of the, the region. But we had done the most realistic assessment that we could do in IGA. And then you also have to, I suppose, follow that up and put the resources behind, you know, what you're going to attract into each uh, region. And uh, again, that becomes very visible when you say, I'm going to build advanced buildings in the following locations. So that means you're not going to build them in other locations. And that's challenging. And there's a kind of a political aspect to that. And everybody thinks their own region is wonderful and their own county is wonderful and uh, town and parish and so on. And the reality is, I'm sure they are uh, for those individuals and so on. But will you attract an investment there is a different uh, question. And all of these regions are not created equal. That, uh, that unfortunately, is just the case. They're not starting from the same base. They don't have the same infrastructure. They don't have the same install base of enterprise, whether it's Irish or multinational. They have different levels of population, different levels of population density, different education levels. And that's what we have to work with. And, you know, there, like, there were a lot of frank discussions with, you know, people at political level, um, people in local uh, institutions to explain why we were doing the things we were doing and what we were uh, trying to do and putting all of the information on the table so that they could understand why we're building here and not there. What, uh, and, and encouraging, I think, as well, the various um, regions and the various counties on what they could do to make their region and location more attractive. And in those regions, did you get the impression that maybe many of the local politicians understood what you were doing but couldn't say that because they had to play to the local populist narrative. Well, I, I, I think there is certainly an element of the latter. Uh, and in some cases, I'm not quite sure uh, that, you know, what we were doing was understood. And it, it, it took a, a, certainly a lot of effort, uh, you know, because, you, again, everybody... Um, and I think this is good in a way. Everybody thinks idea is theirs, and you know that idea should be doing, you know, something for them, and I, and that's great because we have one national investment promotion agency uh, that's different in other countries where, um, you know, there are subnational um, uh, investment promotion agencies for regions or for towns, and and I can tell you in speaking to my peers across the globe, they tear their hair out because they're you know nobody knows who's doing what. The investor doesn't know nationally it's not known and so on the fact we have one single investment investment promotion authority i think really helps and and it is it is ida's job to try to bring all regions on try to explain what we're doing and to bring everybody with you that's part of the job
You're a few months out of the job now, but you still talk like it's very much part of you. How, how much of a wrench was it? And why did you decide to leave it? Um, so maybe the second part of the question, uh, I mean, I, again, I was, you know, eight and a half years um, uh, there. I, uh, if, if I didn't leave and I, you know, I officially finished with IGA uh, in, in the last um, uh, week um, uh, because I had a, a period of gardening leave. So if I didn't leave uh, this year, I would have had to leave next year anyway, because it's a it's a, a, t- a 10 year total kind of uh, two five year contracts and and your 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 finished so it was it wasn't as was I going to leave it was an issue of timing and uh, the timing suited me uh, uh, in terms of now but I think it also suited uh, the organization in the sense of uh, I was keenly aware we were coming up to our mid-term review of strategy so we have uh, a strategy that's at halfway um, uh, period and uh, rather than you know developing the next element of that strategy again and a new uh, CEO inheriting that my preference was that you know somebody else would look at it come in and it would then be their strategy and he or she would be uh, would execute on it. So you've left now at this stage and you're taking up a new role what are you going to be doing with Grant Thornton? Yeah so I'm uh, joining uh, Grant Thornton I am joining as a partner I am going to be head of uh, industry and FDI and uh, so Grant Thornton already has a very developed offering across uh, uh, you know s- several areas um, uh, for multinationals and for uh, the business community it will be about uh, hopefully adding uh, to that and um, and helping them in their uh, positioning uh, of that but also ensuring that uh, you know for companies coming in uh, to Ireland that Grant Thornton, frankly, is the first uh, port of uh, call, and uh, but also as well looking at FDI more broadly, and you know the 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 activity that is you know FDI attraction by investment promotion agencies and helping to build up a practice there. There had been some comments, and I would like to know what you think of it about the appropriateness of somebody moving from a job like you had into doing sort of a similar job in the private sector. So I, I think I think the first thing is Matt. You know, I've spent twenty three years in the public service. Um, I uh, again, I would hasten to add that my contract would come to an end in any event uh, in twenty twenty four. So I would be looking for a job. Uh, I would also say that um, uh, you know the there are obviously. Um, the appropriate mechanisms in place to ensure that there is an appropriate amount of time. Hence, I have been on gardening leave uh, from October to uh, January. That's a decision of the uh, IGA board, uh, uh, appropriate decision in, in my view and with my full agreement. And I am now taking another three months before I uh, I join Grant Thornton. So there will be a six-month window uh, before I can do anything uh, in the in in the private sector um i think that's uh, reasonable uh, uh, to be honest I, I mean again you know this is always going to be a challenge and uh, in ensuring that there are the appropriate uh, mechanisms uh, in, in place but um I mean, the, I, I'm not sure what the alternative is because is the alternative jobs for life in the um, uh, in the public sector? Not sure that's particularly a good idea. I mean, there are people who spend their entire careers in the the public sector, and that's great. But you know, should roles like the CEO of IDA be um, uh, 
tenured i don't think that's a particularly good idea um does the state um you know want to to fund longer periods post-employment in the state you know that's a cost to the state and frankly most people have to work to earn a living pay the mortgage and do things like that do you think have we possibly hit sort of peak investment inward investment given that we've seen in recent months the tech firms starting to lay off people albeit maybe that they had taken on way too many people during the post-pandemic uh, boom and have come back to more realistic levels. But could it be that we're now facing a period where it's going to become a lot more difficult than it had been in recent years to get new jobs in? So I, th- I think just there's two elements to what you're saying. I think the, the first, are we at kind of peak investment? I think we're at very high levels of inward investment into Ireland. I mean, there is there is no question about that. I mean, we've had an extraordinarily good run for over a decade and I think it would be unrealistic to expect that we would continue to attract the same uh, investments at the same levels um, going forward indefinitely. I don't think that's uh, uh, realistic, nor by the way do I think that uh, investment is going to fall off a cliff. Uh, I don't think there is any prospect of that. Uh, I think Ireland continues to have a very strong uh, proposition, and I, I've great confidence in the uh, uh, my uh, colleagues in IDA and whomever the next CEO will be that they will continue to win investment as IDA has done for seventy four years. Um, there are undoubtedly some very uh, difficult international um, uh, issues at the moment, like an international context. Uh, that is going to make it more difficult, I think, to win investment. Not least of those is the fact that the uh, amount of investment, uh, the amount of FDI flows uh, has subsided and hasn't recovered even from 2019 uh, um, pre-pandemic, hasn't recovered to those levels. The, um, obviously, inflation, increased interest rates uh, to combat inflation uh, are issues. The war in Ukraine is a, 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 an issue, supply chain uh, issues. All of these things feed into a much more um, challenging environment. Attracting FDI is much more complex than it was. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, y- you have to be, I think, much more literate in the sectors that we're trying to uh, attract and uh, you know that's what the investor expects there is much more regulation uh, to deal with at both Irish and European uh, level there is now um, uh, um, um, investment monitoring uh, for all countries uh, in in Europe so all of those things make for a much more um, complex uh, environment. The 15% corporation tax rate, which still hasn't come in, but which has been agreed, is that going to make a difference, do you think? No difference at all. It it makes no difference. Uh, So why do we fight so hard all the time to maintain the 12.5% rate? Because we're now talking about uh, all countries moving to the rate rather than Ireland unilaterally doing it. And, you know, and I've said this, uh, I think, a lot that the it, it wasn't so much that it was 12.5%, it was the stability of the 12.5%. So the fact that we had a low competitive rate was hugely important. But the fact that it was a stable, low competitive rate was even more important, and that investors knew exactly what they were signing up uh, to. Uh, so at the point where there was a global agreement, and and Ireland you know, was one of the last signatories uh, uh, to this because Ireland wanted to know what the rate 
would be before it signed up. But at the point where it was known it was going to be 15%, and you could again provide certainty to investors that if you come to Ireland, well, it's going to be 15% and no more than 15%, well, then that makes it uh, 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 more palatable. And I suppose then it's a kind of judgment as to, you know, are you inside the tent or outside of it? And certainly the view which I shared was that uh, if we didn't sign up, it uh, would leave Ireland isolated and it would leave the companies operating here isolated. Of course, we have booming corporation tax revenues at present. There is a concern that they won't continue at the level and will leave a funding shortfall for the state. But could it be that we're actually, we don't tax businesses enough in that individuals get taxed at a high rate, about half of their income goes, you have high VAT, and yet the corporates actually get 12.5% or 15%. Is there enough benefit coming back to society and the economy to justify businesses getting taxed at a much lower rate? Obviously, this is a policy decision that a government uh, and all governments have to make as to what uh, the mix of taxation is going to be, individual, corporate, what they collect through taxes, uh, indirect taxes like VAT and so on. And Ireland has alighted on a particular model, which we've had for uh, a, a couple of decades. And, and I mean, the short answer is it has worked, Matt. I mean, there is no question, but it has uh, worked. And why do I think uh, it, it has worked? And, and, and that, again, that might be challenging for those paying, you know, very, very high rates of uh, taxation, uh, uh, individuals paying very high rates of taxation, I understand that. But but in terms of overall as a country, has the model worked? It, it has. It has worked because we have those investments that uh, that we've been speaking about. You know, we have global brand names who have established in Ireland, in many cases uh, here over decades, have continually reinvested. They spend about 30 billion per annum in the Irish economy on payroll materials uh, services. There was uh, last uh, year, uh, there was about 9 billion in capital expenditure um, from these uh, companies. They are responsible for over 350 billion worth of exports from this uh, country. They are responsible for about 80, um, I think multinationals are responsible for about 80% of the corporate tax take. Those supported by IDA, about 70%. And those employed in those multinational companies contribute about 40% of the income tax take uh, in the country. And why am I kind of trotting out those figures? I'm trotting them out because uh, they're important, because it's what actually funds the, the country. It's what allows government to invest in health, education, the social supports that we require, the infrastructure that we require. So, so you know, one can take issue with the level that corporate tax is set at, or one can take issue with the balance and mix, but but there are lots of upsides uh, to it, which if we want to change it, we just need to know what the potential impact is. You can answer this question now because you are no longer in the employee of the IDA. Would you fear a political shift in this country that could make it less attractive to that investment which provides the revenues? Again, any future government of any hue uh, will is going to have to make you know those kind of policy uh, decisions. But they have to make them in the full knowledge that if you want to do lots of things for your citizens and you want to provide all of those supports that I've just mentioned, education, health, social uh, protection, will then... Um, you need to get the money from somewhere. That's the reality of it. And foreign direct investment has provided 
that for uh, the, the, the last number of decades. And um, so, so, so that's, that's the trade-off, essentially. During your time in the IDA, you must have dealt with some of the most famous business people in the world who have invested in Ireland. Who in particular might have stood out for you has been particularly impressive? Yes, I mean, I, I have met a lot of um, CEOs and senior executives, uh, I, I think, you know, in general, all of whom have been um, very impressive. You'll be very uh, diplomatic, uh, are you? Yeah, well, you know, I, I still have to go and make a living uh, in the private sector, uh, uh, Matt, but and, and, and you know... And th- those people have included people like um, Tim Cook or Sundar Pichai uh, from uh, Alphabet Google, um, uh, Tim obviously from uh, from Apple, leaders of some of the largest global banks and so on. And and you, know, I mean, what does strike you is they're all very different in many respects, and you know they all come as we all do with our own views of the world. They come from you know different parts of the world and so on. Um, all um, to my mind, very clear thinking. Um, very um very focused and um yeah and it, it's it's a pleasure obviously uh, to, to meet people uh, at that level what perception do you think do they have of ireland i, I think uh, resoundingly positive i would say i mean not at all times because obviously sometimes we have very difficult issues to to deal with them uh, on but i think overall um very positive and i think that remains so not notwithstanding some of the issues that we spoke about earlier. Uh, I think Ireland is uh, viewed, again, very stable, very pragmatic. Um, you know, the the workforces that um, those companies have built up here are highly regarded. And we've, we've a lot of people in um, from Ireland who have now graduated to very senior roles within these corporates. So again, it's one of those collateral benefits maybe that isn't seen or understood. But uh, unlike, you know, other countries, um, the leadership of many of those multinational uh, companies in Ireland are Irish in the first instance. And then at corporate level, you now have Irish people sitting around the table at C-suite and you have some of those roles also here in Ireland now. So when people talk about, you know, we are the subject of decision making that is made, you know, in other locations, actually, sometimes those decisions at a very senior level are being made in Ireland and they have influence on them. And it, it is all part, I suppose, of what uh, we have tried to build up. And I think it's important point because, you know, other countries have investment promotion agencies, but I, I regard IDA as a professional, uh, an investment promotion and development agency. It, we don't stop at the point where companies land in Ireland. Um, you know, IDA continues to work with those companies uh, while they're here over long periods of time, which leads to the building of those relationships, which leads to the subsequent investment. Do you think they think more of Ireland than we often think of ourselves? or think better of Ireland than we think of ourselves? You know, one of the um, kind of um, things you do uh, as CEO of IDA is that you're outside of the country a lot. So I would have been on a plane probably every two weeks uh, when I was in IDA going to different parts of the world, east and west. And I think that is the case. I think Ireland is probably more highly regarded than you would be led to believe if you were just to listen to the discourse in Ireland. Do we spend too much of our time concentrating on the United States of America? Do we need to spend more time looking east? Or are geopolitical shifts suggesting that maybe 
it's not the wisest thing to be looking east. No, I, I, you know, one of the things we did in the strategy when I joined in um, 2014 in IDA is we we try to reduce our dependence on the US while increasing the um, the entire pie. So uh, that because but. Seventy percent of uh, investment comes from the U.S., about twenty percent from Europe, um, about ten percent from the rest, and that's mainly Asia, Pac, uh, China, uh, Japan being the two main contributors. Um, that w- that was working, and I think was working reasonably well up to the point of the pandemic. Uh, we had certainly grown our um, investment from from China and from Asia Pac over that um, period. Um, the pandemic has certainly set that back because Asia and particularly China closed and has, as you know, only recently uh, opened. We grew our investment from all regions uh, uh, very significantly in totality. I think we have to we have to look east and west and and we have to look on our own doorstep obviously in Europe as well which is a major source of uh, investment uh, we need to have um, a wide worldview does europe actually give us as much i mean i suppose maybe we think of the european union as something that's always given us sort of transfers into government but has it actually brought in enough of french and german and other companies into making investments in ireland uh, I, I, one would argue Never enough because we're always looking uh, for more investment into the country. But, um, but yeah, I, like Germany is a major investor uh, in Ireland from an FDI um, per- perspective. But again, you know the stats broadly. Uh, I'm not sure exactly. I don't have to know this, that all of the stats uh, now. But I mean, we're we're, we're I think sub seventy percent from uh, from the US. Um, you're still talking about probably um, in the region of twenty percent from Europe and 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 ten uh, percent albeit that I think much more substantial investments coming from um, Asia Pac. Just to finish up, how much are you looking forward to, to life, a new phase in the private sector? Yeah, I'm really looking forward to taking up uh, the role in uh, Grant Thornton and, and uh, getting, uh, getting stuck in. So, uh, uh, you know, I'm always up for a challenge. Martin Shannon, thank you very much for all of your insight. And that was it for today's edition of Magnified with Matt Cooper. That was Martin Shanahan, now with Grant Thornton, once with IDA Ireland. Now, if you've enjoyed this podcast, there are so many more of the series of Magnified with Matt Cooper that you can enjoy as well. If you go to Spotify or Apple or the Goloud app or wherever it is you get your podcasts, there's a selection of many, many more successful and fascinating people who've given their time to me to come to my home and talk at length about their careers and we'll have many more to come in the weeks to come until then for me matt cooper thank you very much for joining us